the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. As a constitutional law attorney, former senior legal advisor and personal counsel to President Donald J. Trump, Jenna Ellis believes in the rule of law and the importance of integrity in our elections. And she's ready to tackle the big cultural and legal issues facing America. This is the Jenna Ellis Show. Here is your host, Jenna Ellis. Hello, my friends, and welcome to another episode of the Jenna Ellis Show. I am Jenna Ellis, and today is going to be a fascinating conversation with one of my best friends in media. You know him from Daily Wire, uh, Andrew Clavin, who uh, to me is one of the most fascinating people that you can ever have a conversation with. And we're going to talk all about entertainment, culture, conservatism. And I think you are going to, through this conversation, maybe be a little bit challenged in some of your presumptions. So we're going to get to Drew in just a moment, but I want to talk to you first of all about my friends at Legacy Precious Metals. They are a company that you can trust to give you good patient counsel for your personal situation. Their team of experts has decades of experience experience, helping Americans like you and me make the right decision for ourselves and our family to protect our finances and retirement. When times are turbulent, you need an asset that protects you. And that's why I believe in investing in gold and trust my friends at Legacy Precious Metals. You can call Legacy Precious Metals today at 866-528-1903. That's 866-528-1903. Or visit them online at LegacyPMInvestments.com and download their free investor's guide. And joining me now on The Jenna Ellis Show is one of my best friends who I just so appreciate and is someone who you all know as a prolific voice in culture and politics, but also entertainment. My good friend, Andrew Clavin, who is the host of The Andrew Clavin Show at Daily Wire and does a lot of other great things. Uh, But Drew, thanks so much for joining me. It's great to see you, Jenna. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, before we kind of get into this topic that I want to talk to you about, about, um, you know, vaccines and sort of the cultural entertainment glorification surrounding that, um, I want to also introduce uh, some people who may not know your background in entertainment and why that's so important. Because you and I have had a lot of um, really interesting conversations. You've taught me actually a lot about how entertainment influences culture generally and why conservatives need to make sure that we're not just giving up entertainment as an impact on culture. Yeah, no, this is a drum I've been beating now for 20 years. I mean, I was, uh, I am still a a thriller novelist, a crime novelist. That got me into the movie business. And I was working uh, quite steadily writing screenplays for a long time and even finally moved out to Hollywood uh, so I could do it more and was doing very well working in Hollywood with some of the biggest names out there. And um, soon after uh, 9-11, when the war on terror started and Hollywood started to make films 
about how awful our troops were, that our soldiers were rapists and fools and criminals and, uh, and that they were just being manipulated by evil Republicans. There was one film after another after another. I started to speak out about that, and my phone stopped ringing, and I was very quickly uh, excised, uh, one might even say blacklisted, from the Hollywood community. And I began to speak to conservative groups. I wasn't really an open conservative at that point, but I began to speak to conservative groups, telling them that while I had been for several years during the 90s out of the country, they had completely lost control of the culture, that the culture was now not monopolized not just by people who were leftists, but by people who were dedicated to using the culture uh, to impose leftists or at least send up a cloud of leftism uh, over the country, and they were succeeding. And when I first started talking about this, so help me, I would get these blank stares from conservative groups. They would look at me. They, they thought it was kind of cute to have somebody from Hollywood come and talk to them as if they existed, but they had no idea what I was talking about. Now, over slow, slow time, that has changed uh, over at the Daily Wire, where I have my podcast. We're starting to get into cultural uh, work. I continue to work, write novels and screenplays. And, uh, you know, there's just a lot more people who are now calling me and saying, what was it you were saying about the culture? Because they understand that culture has an enormous effect. It really is. It's not so much that any one given piece of culture, movie, book, uh, television show, will change the way people think. It's that it just sends out a kind of atmosphere of what the cool kids are doing, what's acceptable, where the Overton window is, what you're allowed to say and what you're not allowed to say, and the left owns it all. Yeah, and, and that's such a fascinating insight into a, probably, I think, where conservatives historically haven't uh, been helpful to our own movement. Because um, if we look back, even at you know some of the pop culture uh, entertainment and broadcasting, you know, television. I mean, I remember watching, and please, people, don't judge me. I did watch Grey's Anatomy most of the seasons. <laughs> they weren't they weren't super terrible at the very beginning. I thought it was great writing, but so many different um, shows like that, or even like The West Wing. Like if you go back and you watch that, and you see how the issues that those characters confronted then it became kind of the talking points and, and laid a lot of the groundwork for accepting a lot of the, the leftist and progressive era politics and policy today. And they started in mainstream media and not just media like how a lot of conservatives think about it, like, you know, Politico and New York Times, not that type of news and information or fake news and misinformation media, but rather entertainment. And so why do you think it is, Drew, that so many conservatives um, aren't participating in Hollywood. They're not participating in writing good fiction. They're not part of this whole um, elitist kind of culture. And so you really only have the progressive leftists that are giving us a lot of the entertainment. Well, there's two big reasons. The first is we get blacklisted. And this is just something that is, it's, it's just true. Once your politics become known, we've seen it now in cancel culture. Cancel culture is only... Uh, coming, bringing into the light what was going on beneath the surface already. Uh, if you say something, if you said something when you were 15 in a tweet about gay people that doesn't fit in with the current LGBTQ agenda, uh, you lose your chance to host the Oscars. Uh, these are things that actually happened, but they were happening all the time. They were just happening more quietly. No one ever said to me, although one or two people called my agent, but, but nobody ever said to me, shut up or you're out of the business. That just sort of happened over time. And I, even even when I was in meetings and I would suggest that maybe I was on the other side of something, it was the end of the meeting. So there's that. There's a blacklist going on. And it's just like, you know, when they took the restrictions off 
uh, hiring black people to to be managers of baseball teams or coaches of football teams. It wasn't like there was a long line outside the door just waiting their chance. If you close the door in people's faces, they go off and do other things. And so that's one of the things that's happened to conservatives in the culture. But there is something else, which is that conservatism is a reality-based idea. It is based on the way people really are. It's not based on what we think they should be. It's based on tradition. It's based on... um, uh, on moral ideas that are not very popular among the people who make films and who promote you know, the ideas that they want to promote. So where once you had uh, a Hollywood that had been built by immigrants, largely Jews, who had seen other countries and knew this was a great country and were liberal in the sense that they wanted to be included too, but were conservative in the sense that they wanted to be included in America as it was, which is very different. Uh, once that felt that studio system fell apart, you basically have the um, uh, inmates running the asylum, where you have the people uh, who are the most powerful people in Hollywood are often actors, uh, you know, ar- artist types, not people who are necessarily responsible to the consumer and to the not, and especially not the American consumer because it's become an international business. So globalism, blacklists. Uh, the kind of people who now run Hollywood, certainly, and publishing as well, all of those things have fed into this. And we, and it, the whole reason I blame conservatives for this is we've built nothing. We haven't built a Facebook, we haven't built a Twitter, we haven't built uh, any kinds of, any kind of organization, a studio, a TV uh, system for putting forward our ideas. Fox News is basically uh, the one time that somebody has ever made that decision. We are going to do the other part of the news, and it became the most popular thing in cable TV. Why it hasn't been imitated with conservative comedy, conservative entertainment, conservative, um, you know, uh, publishing, I don't know. But I think that is beginning to happen now. Yeah, and that's what you guys are doing at The Daily Wire. I mean, and so talk about that and why that's important in terms of branching out, because I know that a lot of people see a Daily Wire. They think of, you know, Ben Shapiro and you and Michael Knowles and, and a lot of the political commentary, but it is really important to get into the entertainment area as well for conservative ideas. Well, The Daily Wire is very special in the sense that it's one of the very few conservative outlets that's actually a capitalist enterprise. Before we came along, most of the conservative outlets, this this always drives me crazy that the left is really good at capitalism. They're really good at making movies that make money and uh, promulgate their ideas, whereas conservatives have think tanks, they have billionaires who are funding our little outlets and things like that. But no, the Daily Wire said, we're going to make money. Uh, And that meant taking ads, and that meant not always being able to say everything we wanted to say because we didn't want to lose customers and sponsors. And so we had to go forward boldly, boldly, but with some kind of awareness that we were a capitalist enterprise. Once that took off and once it became highly funded, um, we could turn to our audience and say, well, help us fund something new. Help us uh, build something else. And the audience, which is a youngish audience, was really enthusiastic about that and has been very helpful uh, going forward. We're making movies. I'm hoping we're going to do publishing. I'm hoping we're going to do all kinds of podcasts in the uh, fictional realm. These are all things that, you know, behind the scenes of The Daily Wire, we all love each other very much, and we also scream at each other a lot, and these are things that we've been screaming at each other. That's a normal family. Yes, it's it's just a family, and these are things we've been screaming at each other about uh, since we started. Uh, It was just Ben, me, and Jeremy Boring, basically, in Jeremy's pool house doing little podcasts 
but all the time thinking, you know, we've got to get into the culture. We can't just be opinion people. We can't just be uh, right-wing bloviators. We have to be making something more because Ben loves to say facts don't care about your feelings. That's true, but feelings don't care about your facts either. And if you can't create uh, an emotional um, place for our ideas to land, they're not going to land. Yeah, and that's one of the really big things that you've taught me. And, you know, we've known each other for quite a few years, and you've always been so kind to have me on your podcast and uh, in your show when, um, you know, I really was just starting to get into a lot of the media and commentary. And um, that has been uh, really helpful for me to develop my voice and also to learn better how to storytell because you are a genius and a master at that. And you're right that there are so many uh, conservatives and think tanks. I mean, nobody is going, you're not going to get, you know, the college kids who on a Friday night are like, let's sit down and read a heritage white paper. That's super fun. You know, they're going to go and watch a movie. They're going to maybe read a book, hopefully, um, you know, and they're going to participate more in entertainment driven where you can kind of check out a little bit, but you still are learning and absorbing that. So, you know, for some of the, um, the houses that are trying to uh, maybe make some movies in, in more of the Christian genre. Um, I've always said to my family, it annoys the hell out of me that so many, and, and I think almost all of these uh, Christian-driven films are really at best B-grade. And that bothers me because as Christians, we should be doing the best and we should be making the best things and showing the example of, you know, the best that this particular genre or medium has to offer. Why do you think it is, um, if you agree with that premise, that a lot of what, at least in the evangelical space, has not been as well made? Is it just lack of funding? Is it something else? No, it's something else. I mean, Christianity, let's remember, created the greatest art that has ever existed on the face of the earth. Uh, the music of Bach, the art of Michelangelo, the novels of Dostoevsky, Christianity fed art when it was a tragic, honest religion. At some point, it shifted into what the philosopher Schopenhauer called banal optimism, which is that everything is tickety-boo, Jesus loves me, I'm so happy, I, I couldn't possibly uh, say anything wrong or do anything wrong, and everything has a happy ending. I describe it sometimes as, you know, every story is I lost my bunny rabbit, but Jesus brought it back again. The world is a tragic, terrible place. They crucified the Christ. Uh, you know, it was, it's not a, a story, it's a story with a happy ending, but that happy ending goes beyond the world. And if we're not willing to tell those stories, uh, we're, we're not going to be able to reach people. The, the problem with Christian film in general has it's been squeaky clean, overly optimistic, and completely unrealistic. And they think they're being realistic when they deal with problems, when they deal with divorce or infidelity. But, but the world is a lot more complicated than that. Uh, some things are fun. You know, One of the things that makes mobster movies like Goodfellas so good is about how much fun it is to be a mobster. Why don't we deal with that? I, I put a scene in my uh, trilogy, Another Kingdom, uh, in which I discuss just how blissful it is to have sex when you don't care about the person that you're sleeping with. Well, just what a blissful, blissful thing that is. And Christians went mad. They thought it was pornographic. And I said, no, it's actually a deeply Christian scene because it's telling you about the nature of people and what, and what you're working with when you deal with people. God is God of this world, and art should be art of this world. He's not the God of fairyland. He's not the God of Candyland. And if we make Candyland pictures uh, about God, everybody's going to know they're fake. A big thing you have to remember, this is really important, is that conservative art doesn't look like conservative life. 
Christian art doesn't look like Christian life. It looks like real life, okay? The founders of this country were not watching Doris Day movies. The people who were watching Doris Day movies were the, people, the rebels in the 60s who found out those Doris Day movies were untrue and rebelled and really destroyed our culture. Uh, the founders were reading Shakespeare, which is full of realism, violence, sex, and all the things that make life life. They were reading the Greek tragedies of people who killed their children and cheated on their wives and uh, God. The Bible, and, full and, of yeah, those stories. The Bible. Well, this real. is the other thing. I'm constantly getting letters from Christians who say, I'm not reading your trash, I'm gonna read the Bible. And I think like, <laughs> oh, good, knock yourself out, but you're gonna find out there's a lot in there. This is a, a, a true thing. When they made the terrible uh, Noah movie um, with, um, well, I forget who the star was now, but they made this big Noah movie where God destroyed the world because of we weren't being ecological enough, because we weren't being green enough, instead of because of our sins. Christians didn't complain about that. They didn't complain about the fact that they had mangled the Noah story to be about environmentalism. They complained about the fact that Noah got drunk which happens in the Bible. I mean, that was the actual, that was the one scene in the movie that was actually uh, from the Bible where the rest of it was all twisted leftism turned into a Bible story. So it, a lot of this is the fault of Christians. They're very good at making their happy little movies. I don't knock that. They're like romantic comedies. If you want to fantasize that the world is all nice and happy, no one's there to stop you. Uh, and you can take your kids, which I think is a good thing. But we need to go beyond that. We need to go beyond that to the kinds of things that Dostoevsky did, where he talked about the deepest tragedy, the best arguments against Christianity are in Dostoevsky, the most Christian novelist who ever lived. Hmm. That's such a brilliant insight. And I think you're totally right, because uh, that's the, also the problem with the church. If all that we're doing is basically glorified TED Talks to say, hey, I'm going to be your life coach and life is happy and find joy. And, you know, does this bring you peace? And we're not dealing with the tragedy of the human condition and the issues that confront us on a daily basis, whether it's our own sin or someone else's sin that is perpetuated on us. We all deal with both of those problems. We have to deal with the human condition. You're right, the founders dealt with uh, man's fallen nature and understood that when they separated powers in government, when they came up with this brilliant idea of our U.S. Constitution and how it was designed, they didn't just have what we uh, have now, you know, from the 1950s on, kind of this model of, um, you know, everything is perfect and every marriage and family and your kids, you know, with the 2.5 kids and the white picket fence, and if you don't attain that idealistic form of perfection, then you're not really a Christian. You aren't really uh, living in, you know, the best form of reality. Well, you're not really living in reality at all. And so, um, you know, it's, it's a commentary as well on the lack of the church's influence. I think as well. And, you know, when we go back to Andrew Breitbart saying, you know, politics are downstream from culture, uh, the church has really abdicated so much responsibility of speaking not only into, into expositing the truth from the pulpit, but also speaking into the culture and dealing with basic reality in the human condition. And so do you see the, the church as being part of this problem of cultural entertainment um, in refusing to even address it or participate other than condemn, you know, some of these scenes? Or where do you see the church's overlap with culture? Yeah, this, there's been a complete breakdown, especially among evangelicals, it seems to me, speaking from the outside, I'm Anglo-Catholic, which is closer to the, to the other side of the, uh, of the river. But, but still, you know, 
once you think that Christianity is a means of making the world a better place, you have lost the message of Christianity. Uh, Christ, Jesus didn't say you're going to make the world a better place. He said the world is going to stink, but I've overcome the world. He said in the world you'll have trouble, but I've overcome the world. Your friend John MacArthur, who you wonderfully defended against the anti-religious lockdowns in, in California, uh, he said this to me on my podcast. He said, I'm not here to make the world a better place. I think, I think Christianity will make people better, and I think that that is true. Each one of us uh, alone goes into uh, the, you know, goes not... We don't go into it alone, we go into it together, but it is alone that we are changed by our relationship with God through Christ. The world doesn't change. The world remains exactly as it was the day Christ was crucified. If he came back tomorrow, they would crucify him tomorrow. And and this is the thing. We have to understand that, that, the, that we're not here to make the world a better place. We are here to have a relationship with God that will bring us into what we call the kingdom of heaven or what you might want to call some form of uh, enlightened relationship with the, the eternal, whatever you want to call it, uh, that's what Christianity does. If we all do that, if a lot of us do that, the world will become a better place, no doubt about it. But if you start with the idea that somehow we're going to make the world a better place, you end up like the Episcopal Church, you end up your God is simply leftist um, politics with a beard, you know. I mean, this is the idea where you go to a church and you say, and the church says Black Lives Matter. They have a banner outside that says Black Lives Matter. Well, no, we Christians don't believe that Black Lives Matter because we don't believe there's such a thing as a black life in Christ. There's only a life in Christ for each one of us, no matter what color we are. And that's that's the rule. That's in the book, you know, that tells us that. Uh, if I see a, um, a flag that says gay pride, you know, I sometimes feel I have to go and explain pride is actually the queen of the sin of sins, you know, it's one of the seven deadly sins. So if you're pride, proud about anything, you're probably on the wrong track. We're not here to change, as Christians, to change the world. We're here to experience the world uh, in some sense through the eyes of God, and that is going to change us and make us part of the a branch of the vine of God, to use Jesus' direct words, where we become part of, of, his, uh, of his life instead of our life. So that's, that's a, those are complex questions. Uh, complex ideas that can be beautifully portrayed in the arts. They have been beautifully portrayed in the arts, and sometimes they're portrayed in um, what I call silhouette. I, it's a, a term that I invented. It just, I call it silhouetting. Like the, the old TV show The Sopranos uh, is, I think, a Christian show, but it's a Christian show in silhouette. It shows you all the dark things that people do and how they don't change and how they keep doing the same destructive things over and over again, but that's something we also need to know. I mean, the arts, part Part of what uh, is wonderful about the arts is they're fun. And one of the things that's fun about the arts is watching people do horrible things. Uh, you know, maybe that doesn't speak very well of us, but it's entertaining to watch gangsters. It's entertaining to watch evildoers and monsters and ghosts and things like that. Those are all part of entertainment, all part of the arts. So the, the church has essentially abandoned its essential uh, purpose, which is the saving of souls. That's what the church is here to do. It is here to help you communicate with Jesus so he can include you in his salvation of the world, which is all he wants. By trying to be relevant, by feeling that um, they're no longer a force in the world, uh, they have abandoned their faith. It's really most churches, I would say, most churches, evangelical churches, no longer belong believe in the supernatural, they only believe in magic. They only believe that if you pray, you'll get what you want. That's magic. The supernatural is an entire realm of moral understanding above the natural world, where sometimes 
you have to do something that'll get you hurt, that'll cost you money, that'll lose your friends. Uh, that's, that's because you believe in something supernatural above those natural gifts of friendship and money and success that we all want. But sometimes you sacrifice those for things that are supernatural. The church is no longer willing to do that, speaking generally. Yeah, and, and especially today now that we're seeing the uh, the progressive leftists really use uh, politics as the new religion. That's what we're seeing. And the church is completely missing the boat on this. They are absolutely missing uh, this when it comes to something like the vaccine mandates and trusting the science. This has become the new religion on the left. And the church is just going along with it. And rather than uh, calling this out for what it is and saying this is a worldview. This is uh, with when the left has tried to excise God from culture. Now they're holding up what they believe is truth, and you can't argue with it. And they are putting a, a compulsory mandate on every American that you not only have to uh, worship the gods that they have. Uh, held up as sacrosanct people, you know, like Fauci and the CDC, and even, you know, Gavin Newsom, it probably considers himself a demigod of, of their new religion. Um, they hold up the science. You have to participate in their sacraments, which now include, um, you know, the vaccine. You have to include even speech now. You know, there are things that you will be censored if it's considered hate speech, if it's considered to go against their new religion. And so when you look at, um, Drew, kind of this, this whole... Um, how how you've described culture and how uh, the, this entire completely missing it of of the church. Where are we at today with the progressive leftist new religion, and how do we, as not only the church but also in um, the entertainment sphere, uh, combat that and actually get out the truth instead of participating in this new religion? Well, in, in terms of the in terms of the arts, the only thing you can do is tell the truth. As an artist, the only thing you can do is tell the tr you know deliver your vision of the world. That's what art does. It delivers what's inside me to you, so that I the experience that I have of the world becomes part of your experience, and that enlarges your mind. There's you. Art is really not a system of preaching. It shouldn't be a system of preaching, but it is a way of seeing and a way of teaching people to see and a way of sharing what you see with other people. And so that requires honesty. It requires courage because you're going to be slapped around. You're going to be canceled. You're going to be attacked, and you just have to keep going forward, hoping that eventually uh, your work will reach the audience that will love it. So that, that's a hard thing to do because it's so much easier to just take the job in Hollywood or to take the job, at, you know, that write the book you know they'll publish and you know will sell. That's a hard thing to do. But it's something you do because you believe there is something higher. There's a higher truth than that. And if you gut the world of you, you never get rid of religion because we have, we, all of us carry a God-shaped hole inside us. And so something's going to fill that hole. And the left has made it the government, basically. It's made it, you know, the elites. And as you say, science, which is not, I mean, it's not real science. We all love science, but it's their science is whatever they happen to think is true in the moment. So men can magically become women. And, you know, every everything that uh, the, and the weather is going to kill us, the environment is going to kill us if we stop don't stop driving our cars, and all these things that are just really superstition become part of their religion. Listen, I, you know, I, I believe in the, the I believe in vaccines in general. I believe in this vaccine in particular. I think people shouldn't take it or not take it because of what I say or you say. They should go to a doctor and find out whether they what the doctor thinks. Go to a doctor they trust and find out what the doctor thinks about it. But the thing is, they have almost made it impossible to take the vaccine 
with a sense of pride. I mean, John Nolte was writing about this over at Breitbart. He was saying it's all, he says, he thinks they're trying to kill us. He thinks they're trying to make us so angry by the way they treat us and the way they look down on us and the way they push us around and bully us and use authoritarian methods and make fun of us for disagreeing with them that we will just say, no, I'm not taking the vaccine and then die. That's what he thinks, that, that's what he thinks their plan is. And all I can say, Nolte is a great guy and one of the most honest people I know. And all I can say about that is, If they wanted conservatives not to take the vaccine, they would not do anything different than they are doing right now. I mean, they are just being so offensive, so oppressive, so authoritarian, so superior, so smug that you just want to take, you know, my my son said he wanted to suck the vaccine out of his arm, (laughs) making him so angry. We on the right, I I have to say this as a it's not a criticism of the right necessarily. Part of being a conservative is wanting to conserve things. And so there's a reactive element to it. They say, let's change this. And we immediately say, no, don't change anything. And that's not always the right thing to say. They say, uh, you know, up, we say down, they say black, we say white, whatever it is they say, we sometimes say the opposite. So we don't want to do that either. We want to be free to see the world clearly, to gather facts, to debate things, to disagree with one another and to come to conclusions. I don't want to see, and there is this threat sometimes on the right, I don't want to see the right become like the left where we all have to march in lockstep. Uh, I want us to be arguing with one another in goodwill and without, you know, cursing each other out. But I think there's a lot to discuss because there are things that need changing and there are changes that have to come. And we want them to come in a conservative way. We want them to come in keeping with our traditions. But the minute the left takes hold of something, They are so obnoxious, so authoritarian, so smug and so superior and really not very bright, if I may say so, that that they they offend us to the point where we don't even want to hear them when they happen to be right, like a stopped clock twice a day. And so, you know, it really is an interesting thing. I, you know. I've been working with people of very high intelligence most of my life. You work in publishing, uh, you write for a living, you're going to meet very highly intelligent people. All all intellectual thought right now is going on on the right in some sense. Uh, the left is, has fallen into this woke religion, as you say. It's not, you know, they always use the word religion in a bad sense. They always say woke is a religion, meaning it's, it's unreasonable. My religion is not unreasonable at all. My religion is, uh, holds up reason as a very high standard. What they're doing is they just believe in what they believe and they will listen to nothing that contradicts it. That is not a good system for thinking, and if you read, say, take, for instance, the New York Times op-ed page, it's a, it's a bunch of hysterical children screaming at one another. It's nothing like the Wall Street Journal op-ed page, which is more conservative and is full of reasoned argument. You look at their arts, the arts are in a terrible trough right now. There's no good TV, there's no good music, there are no good movies, very few good books, and the reason for that is because wokeness is the philosophy of idiots, and you cannot make good art that's woke because woke doesn't describe reality and that's what art does it describes reality in some sense or other and so they have really left a big opening for us they have left a big hole for us to fill the culture and we really need to seize the moment and step forward and do that and in order to do that the audience is going to have to come along they're going to have to let artists be artists which means we're a little crazy we're a little eccentric Uh, we say things we're not supposed to say all of all artists are pretty much like this Uh, and they're going to have to support us in the moment, instead of going to the next leftist uh, superhero movie that sells you, you know, sexual disorder uh, as a as a superpower, you know, it's it's a tough thing. We've got a tough road ahead of us. We are right now where the left was maybe 
30, 40 years ago. Uh, we're gathering in groups. We're discussing what needs to be done. We're starting to make works. We're taking the hits that have to be taken uh, when we get canceled, when we get thrown off uh, social media platforms. It's, it's genuinely happening. And the question is, they, they were very successful. I admire them. I respect them for what they did. They did it in the name of a philosophy that is destructive and wicked, but still, they did it really well. Uh, we have to do it really well in the name of the, philo the philosophy of freedom. And it is beginning, but we're going to have to keep at it for quite some time. And that's an encouraging word, too. And you're absolutely right that most conservatives uh, don't want to change and adapt because we are used to thinking, okay, if this is the principle of the thing, then if I shift any of my um, analysis or any of uh, how I'm acting, then that means that somehow maybe I'm not conserving the principle as well, rather than having those sort of robust debates. And the, the times that I've learned the most have been in not arguments and quarrelsome, you know, nature of people just yelling at each other and nobody's convincing anybody, but actually having those really deep, genuinely uh, sincere dialogues and with people who I disagree with or, or who maybe just see the world a little bit differently than I do. And if we're honest enough as conservatives, if we have our grounding principles, then we'll be able to say, okay, here's my principle and I'm not moving from that. I mean, like we believe in moral law. We understand um, you know, the human condition. I mean, certain things that are, you know, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. I mean, some of these, you know, just basic things. Um, but then how we actually implement and apply them, that's what our founders did. I mean, they got together, they debated and had totally different ways of, um, of reaching at what they considered the best uh, way to protect and preserve our rights moving forward. And how we do that as a society um, that is moving into uh, the 21st century, we're confronting a lot of different technology. Um, my, my opinion, frankly, has been changed in terms of the best implementation um, of things, and, and I'm glad you brought up this example, Drew, of of saying you know conservatives often because we think of things a certain way and rationally and reasonably. I mean, I I love reason more than entertainment, but we tend to then kind of have the knee jerk reaction. So when we're talking about things like, for example, Facebook and Twitter and the the censorship there, my first reaction to that as a conservative was, well, you know, the First Amendment doesn't apply. This is a private organization. Government shouldn't intervene because that's that has been the conservative principle. But my view on this, based on having some very sincere arguments and debates with some of my fellow conservatives that I really respect a lot, my position on this has been like, well, wait a minute, we need to actually approach this in a different way because of how big tech has been not only colluding with government, but the outcome of this is not principle-based. Um, so maybe we need to change our strategy, not yielding our principles, but we need to be looking at this and saying, okay, what is, how do we apply this to something that is in the new modern era? And we have to look at this differently as conservatives because at the end of the day, if we let Facebook censor only issues that they don't agree with and you have to go with the cultural mantra and the narrative, the conservative principle then is not being an applied in a way that's actually preserving society for the next generation. So in that context, my view has shifted as a conservative, um, even though my principles haven't. So as you're seeing the landscape of censorship and you're seeing, you know, even with the Facebook uh, hearings and the so-called whistleblower, I've seen a lot of different opinions on that. Um, how do you think that conservatives need to view uh, this whole issue and dealing with the left moving forward? How do we maybe need to th rethink our application of conservative principles? 
you know, first of all, I want to say I'm really happy to hear that you have moved your position on this because, for one thing, you're a lawyer and you actually know things uh, as opposed to me who's just talking. But, but, you know, I think it's a very important point and it is this is a central example of the kinds of changes that we're talking about. If I get yelled at by the right about something more than anything else, it's on this subject. They say, well, the First Amendment restricts government, but it certainly shouldn't restrict a private business like uh, Facebook or Twitter or Amazon. Uh, and my point about this is, is simply this. We've never seen anything like Facebook or Twitter or Amazon before. These are stateless international corporations with more money than most countries have. They are not your corner store. They're not your corner bookstore. They are essentially monopolies that can change what information comes to us uh, with the snap of a finger. Abraham Lincoln pointed out that while the Constitution is the law of the land, the Declaration is the philosophy that informs the Constitution. And in the Declaration, it tells us that we have the right, we're all created equal, we have the rights uh, to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, among other natural rights that were given to us by God, given to us by our Creator, and that governments are instituted among men to secure those God-given rights. That's the, the philosophy of the country. That's the axiom of the country. You don't have to believe in God to believe that. You have to ex act as if there were a God to believe that. You have to stipulate that that God is the founder of this country. And so we have these rights. Government is instituted among men to secure those rights, it doesn't matter whether government takes those rights away or Mark Zuckerberg takes those rights away. Government is there to protect us. And so the First Amendment, yes, restricts the government in what it can do. But if a private company becomes big enough, powerful enough to make it impossible for me to say what I want to say in such a way that it can have an, the same effect as somebody else saying something else, that company has to be restrained. This is what regulations are for. When we invent a new thing, when we invented factories, we had to have new laws and regulations making sure that children wouldn't be eaten up by machines or wouldn't be forced to work 12 hours a day. When we had phone companies, we suddenly had to say, well, you know, when you're on the phone, people actually don't have a right to listen to you, even though it's going through the air and could be decide, you know, declared public. No. That's a private conversation. The phone company cannot come on the line and say, I'm sorry, I didn't like your opinion. We're cutting off your service. They can't do that. Now we have something new. New things need new regulations. Now, every time I say this, conservatives start screaming about regulations. All <laughs> yeah, the over-administrative state. Oh, no. Yeah. All human interactions are regulated. You and I can argue, but if I start to strangle you in the argument... You can call the police. It's a rate we all human relations are regulated. When you have a new way for us to relate to one another, and that's what the internet is, it needs some regulations to make sure that our basic rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, including our right to free speech, are not being abrogated by these people who are essentially princes. These are kings of the world. They have they have so much money and so much power that it is impossible for anybody to understand it. And as you point out, they're also acting now at the behest of government, which is one of the few things that has enough power to intimidate them into doing what they want. So Google, you know, Google used to have the slogan, don't do, don't be evil, was their slogan. Then when they realized that wasn't making the money, they dumped the slogan and they started being evil. They actually are doing evil things. They are uh, harvesting your information and selling 
byproducts of your information and your behavior that should belong only to you. There are people on the left who know this too. I mean, the left used to know that corporations were a power center and therefore a threat to freedom. They've just forgotten as corporations have moved left. But they, this, the fact still remains. So yeah, we're living in a new world. It's going to be a global world. You know, when people use the word globalism, there's no changing the fact that it's going to be a global world. But I believe it should be a global world filled with individual nations. I mean, in all good science fiction stories, the, about the future, the good guys are called the Federation, you know, it's because we accept that we're all different and we all have to have a say in this global world. It's not going to be a global world with George Soros sitting on his throne somewhere deciding who can say what and where the money's going to be spent. That's not the way it's going to work if, if we have anything to say about it. So, yeah, you know, these, these are things that conservatives need to think about. Is a change bad in and of itself. We have a talent, conservatives. We have a talent for seeing how any change is going to make everything fall apart. We have to get past that and say, no, things are going to change. You know, uh, people, I hear conservatives sometimes talk about uh, the bad effects of birth control and how birth control undermined the reasons for uh, sexual morality. That's true, but birth control isn't going away. So you have to invent a world in which conservative ideas can live with birth control. You know, you can't just say, I want that to, to disappear. That's not going to happen. Uh, right. So I think that we really need to be thinking in a much more flexible way. We need to become less reactive, less reactionary, and more creative. I, I, this, is, you know, this is what it comes down to, Jenna. If I had to say one thing about both Christianity and conservatism is that for a time, and I think this is changing right as we're speaking, but for a time, we ceased to be creative. We only became reactive. You will always lose that way. You will always lose. You have to make them react to you. You have to make the people... You know, when was the last time Chris, a, a, a Christian said something Christian that was new? You know, I mean, I, I try to do this on my show. I try to talk about Christianity, not changing what it says, but introducing ways that maybe you haven't thought about what it's saying, maybe ways that it applies to the new world that didn't exist before because the world was different. Uh, Christianity should be a creative act because it's a living truth. Uh, conservatism should be creative because it is, our American conservatism is not, aristocratic. It's not about blood. It's not about soil. It's about conserving the Constitution, which is a document geared toward change. It can be changed itself. Mm -hmm. It can create change. It can make new laws. Uh, it's a wonderfully flexible, brilliant piece of work. And if that's what we're defending, then we have a lot of things that we can do that are going to make the world a better place and not just continually be shouting, go back, go back, go back. Yeah, and, and that's what conservatives, I hope for the people listening to this, are maybe thinking about this in a new way, because as much as we reject the idea and the notion that, you know, the Constitution is fluid, that it can just be dynamic and can mean whatever we want it to mean in terms of uh, not having a fixed meaning, well, no, that's not what you or I are saying. We're saying that it has the ability to um, to bend and to adapt in in applying the principles of our founding charter because truth doesn't change. Truth is eternal and we understand that as conservatives. But what, um, as you rightly pointed out, Drew, what we haven't really accepted very well is that the world changes. The world moves forward and there is progress. And so we have this kind of um, con inherent conflict where we want to conserve principles. And it's almost like we expect the world to be this pristine policy debate where, you know, unless you give me all of the advantages and none of the negatives, we're going to stay on the status quo because the status quo is always the best. And there's that implicit presumption among conservatives that whatever is the current status quo 
And you look, even the church, that their status quo goes back, you know, a lot of the, the Baptists and kind of my world of how I grew up, you know, back to the 1950s. That is their status quo, and they won't move on from that. And so we're losing a lot of our young people because, you know, the young people are um, are adapting and changing. They're growing up in an entirely different world than you or I did. And so they don't have the same status quo. And because of that, they've already adapted, and they're already interacting with new interfaces. They're already, um, how we communicate has already changed. And so it's not going to be the same status quo. And so what I think is really important for people to recognize is that you can be principled. We can be conservatives while still understanding that the law touches and concerns everything that we do. You're right that there are regulations and it's not a bad thing. I mean, a lot of conservatives being very libertarian in mind want a small government to the smallest extent possible because they have this idea and this premise that government is inherently evil. And so we have to keep government at a minimum. Well, that's not really what conservatism or even what our founders believed. An overreaching government, of course, um, can be monstrous, can, can be evil, but so can a limited government. If government isn't there doing its job, then you naturally have problems, just like this whole defund of the police. If we don't have the police to be there, we're not going to, in practical reality, have the protections that we need even inside our homes. And so to look at this in a different way, and, and I'm glad that you... Um, agree that we need to look at Facebook and a lot of these um, these companies who aren't utilities. I don't think the court is going to recognize them as that. Um, it was it was initially the, sort of the knee-jerk reaction to say, well, you know, the First Amendment doesn't apply and these are private corporations. But you're right that because the law touches and concerns and does and should regulate in some sense how we interact with each other, that's what the law does, we have to contemplate it for a new era. And that's why there's always new landmark decisions. Um, it fascinated me going through law school thinking, how have we not already had you know Supreme Court opinions on literally everything? Well, it's because society progresses and changes. And you know, back in um, the, the 1950s, nobody would have ever thought you know, we'd have a little device in our hand that we can send text messages, that we can go on these big public platforms. So the law has to then adapt and say, how do we best preserve and protect the rights of not only the corporations, you know, that have um, the ability to interact with society, but ultimately fulfill that conservative principle of preserving and protecting our rights. And I hope that as people are listening to you, Drew, and, and listening to this conversation, they're overcoming that initial presumption that law is bad or that all change is bad. And I think that as a, as a principle and a message for this is so important. And that's something that, you know, you and others, I mean, I, I talked with Candace Owens at length um, about, because uh, she was kind of one of the first on that wave of saying, you know, no, uh, Facebook and Twitter absolutely have to be restrained from suppressing us. And, um, and we had a lot of that debate and dialogue, and she was right. And so, you know, as we move forward in this, um, I hope that people will recognize that we have to be conserving our principles by moving forward and not being progressives, but by progress in society. Yeah, that's right. I, I mean, I even think that the old designations of conservative and liberal are no longer actually uh, relevant to what's going on. What we're dealing with now is power. 
you know, it's not a question of a big government or a small government, as you say. The, the government is a government of 350 million people running an empire. It's going to be large. It's going to be a large government. We want it limited. We want all power centers limited. This is the thing. The one source of power that right now is under threat is the power of the people. There's no threat to Jeff Bezos's power. There's no threat to government power. There's no threat to the power of people in Davos who decide, who are thinking that we're going to tell everybody where, all the nations, where to spend their money. The only threat to anybody's power is the threat to the power of the guy who's just doing his job day by day and wants to be left the hell alone. That guy is under threat, and he is supposed to be uniquely, uniquely in this country, he is supposed to be the sovereign of of all other power, the source of all other power. And you look at what the left is doing specifically, and I call them the left, I should just call them the Democrats, uh, basically trying to bleed away that power to make uh, laws that make it easy to cheat in elections so elections are no longer trustworthy, to pack the Supreme Court, to get rid of the Electoral College, which preserves the power of states and therefore preserves the power uh, preserves the power of localities and therefore preserves the power of individuals. Everywhere they go, they are trying to get what they what you think is democracy, which is everybody just throws in a vote, but which is the, which is the thing the founders feared most, which is a tyranny of the majority. The what we are looking for is to preserve is to limit all power centers, to put all power centers in conflict with one another, so that the people can still exercise their power. Uh, to do what they want to do and to make the decisions they want to make and to trade freely and to invent freely and do all the things that people do when the powerful just leave them the hell alone. Mm -hmm. And so that's really, those are really the issues we're dealing with and we're dealing with them both on a national scale and on an international scale. We have seen, I mean, the, the stuff we have seen during this pandemic in Australia probably worst of all, but certainly in California and in Michigan and in New York where these little petty satraps who suddenly decided that they were the king of the glowing world uh, are, are shutting down churches, are uh, silencing speech, are locking people in their homes. By what power? By what right? Uh, they haven't got the right, and they have really overstepped their bounds, and it's my hope that the people will finally th uh, throw off the shackles of fear, which is what they're trying to shackle them with, and fight back, because we're really, it really, I'm willing to work with socialists, if those socialists will protect my power to do what I want. I'm willing to work with anybody who designates as any damn thing as long as he will maintain my freedoms. And the libertarians in some ways are the worst because they think that freedom is achieved by getting rid of all constraint, but when you get rid of all constraint, only the powerful thrive. And that's, that's what's happening essentially now in the internet world, is that we uh, let them develop because we wanted that business to develop. We let them to develop to a point where they're out of control. Uh, they have much too much power. They're becoming an arm of government. And what I'm concerned about right in this, at this moment is that too many powerful people have this similar interests. Um, you know, all of these guys, Jeff Bezos, uh, Jack Dorsey at Twitter, Mark Zuckerman, all of them became rich because individuals made decisions to use their, uh, their business. Individuals lifted them up by making individual decisions. And now suddenly they've gotten so high up that they think, you know what would be a good idea if only I made the decisions? 
if, uh, you know, if Jeff Bezos decided what books would be available, if Mark Zuckerberg decided what words could be said, if Twitter decided what uh, statements could be made on his platform, suddenly they get turned around. They think that they have become so powerful that they're the ones who should be making decisions instead of the individuals who made them what they are. And what I, what I think the problem is, is right now, People in government feel that way. The Bidens and the Ocasio-Cortezes, they all feel they should be making the decisions. The millionaires and the billionaires, as Joe Biden would say, they feel that they, and the imaginary trillionaires that he makes up all the time, they feel that they should be making the decisions. And I feel I should be making decisions for me, you should be making decisions for you, and the powerful ought to step back and give us the room to live our lives. And so that, those are the things that I'm worried about, and I think that those are going to take new, inventive, creative ways, uh, both to... Uh, legislate them, but also, more importantly, to instill that value of freedom into the hearts and minds of young people. And that's where the culture comes in. If we don't have uh, a culture that feels the goodness of freedom, uh, that, that breathes in and out with the assumptions of that they should be free, then eventually whatever terror comes along at any given moment, whether it's war or pandemic or the climate changing or sunshine or whatever they're trying to make us afraid of, uh, that is going to rule the day. If you don't have it base, some kind of just instinct that, no, you know what, no matter how afraid I am, I should be free, which is what we used to have in this country I, in my lifetime. Uh, if you don't have that assumption, and that assumption is not inculcated in you by uh, education and movies and books and your elders and sports stars, if that idea of freedom is not there, then you will lose your freedom no matter what the facts are. Yeah. And the, the good news is, is that this same exact confrontation of culture has been the same throughout human history where, you know, the, the human condition hasn't changed and we are just confronting it in a new way in the 21st century and in, in, in a new era of big tech. But this is the same problem of the elitist versus you know, the common man who just wanted to be left alone to make the decisions for themselves and their families. That was the same exact problem that we had at America's founding. And so the good news, I think, for people and the good news and the encouragement is that we are simply confronting this in a new way, just like they confronted it in a new way in their time, and as their ancestors did in a new way in their time. And so this isn't a new thing. It's just, are we going to have the courage to recognize it for what it is, to be principled enough, but also to be teachable enough and to be humble enough to say, you know what, maybe I need to be thinking about conservatism and um, and understanding the application differently than the knee-jerk reaction that I've been comfortable with over the last 20 and 30 years, because we've become complacent as conservatives, because we've had the advantages of outright freedom. We've had prosperity. We've had so many things that have made us more weak and malleable and, and being comfortable being in the majority of saying, you know, this is a Christian nation and nobody's going to tell us otherwise. And nobody has been censoring us uh, for saying that for the last, you know, at least the 36 years of my lifetime. Right. And so we need to be willing, as you said, to stand up and fight as our founders did and not let the flame of liberty be extinguished in our generation, but to continue to pass that on in the new ways, confronting the new issues. And Drew, I so appreciate your time. And every time that we have these conversations, I could sit here and, and talk to you for another three hours. And I love when we get to because um, every time I always feel like I see things in a new way after speaking with you and after listening to you. And I love that you are participating in 
um, this whole debate on a national level because people need to listen to you because I think you are one of the best voices for this to not just explain the politics, but really bring it down to the worldview, to the truth, and to where we go from here. So how can people find you? Um, Obviously, Daily Wire, everybody knows, um, but to follow you and to get more of uh, the truth that you so eloquently express. Oh, first of all, you're very kind. Thank you very much. It's very gratifying to hear you say that. Uh, I have my show on Fridays at The Daily Wire or on wherever you get podcasts. You can find The Andrew Clavin Show. Uh, I'm at Andrew Clavin uh, on Twitter. And if you go to andrewclavin.com, you can see all my books, which are uh, actually worth reading. Uh, I I think they are, uh, many of them are important novels. And I also have my memoir there, The Great Good Thing, which talks about my long, long journey to Christian faith. Um, So I hope you'll show up there as well. Yeah. And thanks so much. And for, for people out there as well, I mean, you know, so Drew has obviously been, you know, a, a dear personal friend of mine as well. And one of the great things, um, and I have to say this as we close, um, that I've loved about engaging in media and uh, being around really superior intellectuals like Drew and, you know, like so many others that I get to meet at conferences and things. Um, these are the types of people that you need to surround yourself with. And I have grown so much as, as a person, not only in my faith, in my understanding of conservatism, um, not just being myopically focused in law. I mean, I think all of us in a different profession think our profession is the best, right? Because we're, uh, we naturally gravitate towards that. That's why that became our vocation. And to expand that and to be willing to learn and have people as mentors and friends and people you can go hang out with and debate with and, and all of that, that is so important to your own personal enrichment and development and ability to, um, to confront, you know, the, the daily things that you interact with or the national problems and so, um, Drew, I so appreciate your friendship, um, your willingness to, um, to teach me things. And um, I've just so appreciated you for so many years. And um, everyone needs to have a really good group of friends. And always, I hope that uh, when people are looking at, you know, who they hang out with, strive to be the least smart person in the room because then you really uh, grow and you change. And so when I get to come and visit you guys at Daily Wire, I'm always like, yes, these are my people. You guys are awesome. And I always learn so much. So um, so thank you for that. And I hope everyone reads uh, your memoir, The Great Good Thing. It's fantastic. Um, follow Drew. And I hope that you'll come on again soon. And I love these conversations because uh, you know, as much as we're doing this for, uh, for the podcast, it's always just um, really fascinating to me to just participate in the conversation. So thanks, Drew. Thanks, Jenna. It's always great to see you. And I appreciate the flattery as well. Well, it's all true. So thanks so much. Talk to you soon. Um, So one of the sponsors for The Jenna Ellis Show is my good friend, Mike Lindell. And by now, you've all heard me talk about MyPillow. And Mike now has done it again by introducing his new My Slippers. I'm so excited about these. Um, I have a pair of My Slippers. They're kind of awesome. And he has taken over two years to develop these. They're designed to wear indoor or outdoor all day long. So this is important if you're like me and you have to like go to the package room, the mailbox, you can actually wear them outside, not just indoors and then have to put something more uncomfortable on to go outside. They're made with MyPillow foam and impact gel to prevent fatigue and made with quality leather suede. So for a limited time, he's offering 50% off his new MySlippers. So go to MyPillow.com, click on the radio listener square, and you can use the promo code Jenna, that's J-E-N-N-N, to get the new my slippers at this deep discount and on all my pillow products including the giza dream bed sheets the my pillow mattress topper my pillow towel sets call 
888-888-8475 or go to mypillow.com. Use the promo code Jenna. And of course, support Mike Lindell because he has been uh, absolutely canceled by a vicious, vicious leftist culture. And I'm so proud that Mike is a sponsor of the Jenna Ellis show because he is a very good friend and I'm very glad to support him as well. So use the promo code Jenna at mypillow.com or call 1-800-564-8475. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.